Friends, this morning I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the, I think we're now in the third week in a series on the hope of heaven, on what the Bible teaches about the future for a Christian and how to apply that hope to the lives we're living now in the meantime. This series has taken us all over the place, not just one passage of Scripture, but to many of them. And and this morning we're going to make several stops across what the Scriptures have to teach us, but the main anchor text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And you'll find that on page 896 of the little Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along in one of those. I don't know where it came from, uh, but now I seem to see it everywhere. I hear it on podcasts, I've heard it on TV shows, I've seen it on t-shirts, I've seen it on social media graphics. I did a quick search for it the other day on Amazon and it turned up hundreds of results that range from books for kids to books for adults to silver charm bracelets to hoodies in many colors to embroidered makeup cases to wall hangings to throw pillows and even stickers that you can put on your rearview mirror so you see it while you're driving. I'm talking about the simple uplifting mantra for our times. You are enough. Have you heard that? You're enough. Surely you've seen it too. I wonder if you've stopped to consider as you've seen this mantra, wherever you may have seen it. I wonder if you've stopped to consider what it means that this phrase put into these settings is so popular. I see at least two big implications. Implication number one of the popularity of this phrase is that there must be significant insecurity about our worth. That self-worth is a massive problem in our culture. And I'm not just talking about how how wide the problem must go if this phrase is popping up all over the place. I'm talking about how, how deep that problem must go in the human heart. How low must my view of myself be if I get a boost from a statement made by who knows who about no one in particular, mass produced for sale at suburban home goods megastores. Whatever else you might say about it, you are enough, has got to be a symptom of a deep and pervasive problem in our culture. I I see it as a sign that many people feel relentlessly, hopelessly inadequate and long for some relief. Can you relate to that? Have you felt that? Second thing I think this phrase suggests is that we humans, we have an inevitable craving for validation. We long for what the Bible calls justification. It's a big and important biblical word. Think of it as a verdict given in a courtroom over someone who's standing before a judge who then gives his judgment of them. We want to know that we're justified. Another important biblical word that goes with that. We want to know that we're righteous. The justified person is one who is righteous. It's a word that means worthy. It means exactly what you're supposed to be. It it, it means, in other words, you are enough. And we're not wrong to crave hearing that statement made about our lives. It is supposed to matter to us whether we're good enough. But friends, everything... Everything depends on where we look for this validation, 
on what basis and when. There is only one person who is authorized to look at your life and tell you you're enough. The only person authorized to tell you that you're enough is the God who gave you your life in the first place. And if you're a Christian, there's a day coming when you will stand before God and you will hear him say, you are enough. Not because of anything you've done to deserve that judgment, but because Christ is enough and you stand in him. And on the day of judgment, when you stand before God and he speaks those words over you because of what Jesus has done and not what you have done, you will be done forever wondering whether you measure up. You will know you're enough because Christ is. And you'll see yourself as God sees you. And this morning, what I want to do is meditate for a few minutes on that promise from Paul's words about that day in 1 Corinthians 4. And what I want to do is help you connect that day, the day of judgment, and what it means for a Christian to an age-old struggle that is dialed way up in our culture today. I want to connect the hope of the day of judgment to the everyday struggle with feelings of inadequacy. And the first thing I want to do is read to you from Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, the fourth chapter. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 5. And this morning we'll focus especially on verses 3 to 5. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Friends, I want to take three steps with you this morning. The first one will be more about setting the stage, a little look into our culture, to norms that we're living with today. That first step is the exhausting search for justification. The exhausting search for justification. The second step we want to take takes us into what Paul has said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul shows us the ultimate hope for rest. That's step two. That's where we look to our future. And then in step three, I simply want to help you draw from that future into your present and show you the challenge of faith in the meantime. The exhausting search for justification, point one. The ultimate hope for rest, point two. The challenge of faith in the meantime, point three. Point one, guys, the exhausting search for justification. One of the most convincing explanations I've ever seen for how we got to be where we are, a culture where a phrase like you are enough peddled on Amazon actually helps us, potentially. How do we get that far? 
into angst about justification. One of the best explanations I've seen so far it comes from a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he traces that angst back to different, so some, some really important changes that happened between the ancient world into our modern world. In pre-modern times, back in the day, the medieval world, for example, honor mattered a lot, but it was tied to your status, and your status came from your birth. You were just born honorable or not honorable. You were born noble or peasant. You were born on a social ladder that absolutely had a high and a low, but you didn't get to choose where you fell. You just were what you were. The assumption was that we're not all equal. Everybody saw that, but nobody could do much moving up or down that social ladder. You either had an awesomeness that everyone could recognize because of who your family was, or you didn't. For a host of reasons, that wasn't good. I'm glad we don't live in those times anymore. Things are different now. In our modern, though, in our modern egalitarian culture, there is no status assigned at birth. We say everybody's equal in their dignity just by being. And they're free to become whatever they want to become. The implication there, though, is that the honor people still crave, the distinction people still want, the place on the ladder above others beneath you, well, now we have to climb that ladder ourselves. Now anyone can have honors, not just the nobles, but that opportunity comes with pressure that the peasants never had to live with. Now it's up to you as an individual to find an identity, to build one that other people will recognize as awesome. Everybody still wants that. And now anyone can get it, at least in theory, but nobody can take it for granted. The modern person, Charles Taylor wrote, has to win it through exchange, and it can fail. That's what Taylor says. You see what he's saying? Where the ancient world had nobles and peasants, our world has winners and losers. In the ancient world, you were born into honor or not. In our world, you got to compete for it. Another way to say what Taylor is saying is that is that now you've got to establish your value in a crowded marketplace. That even personal validation, value, worth, operates like a, like a product in a market. How do you get value in a crowded marketplace? I'll tell you how. You've got to find a niche. You've got to find something that the market is looking for that nobody else is doing as well as you can do it. You need it to find something that's unique to you, something that matters to others, and then you need to do that thing better than anyone else can do it. How do you stand out in a crowded market full of shoes when both, most any shoe will actually get you through in wet weather, dry weather, whatever you need? I mean, shoes are just shoes. But if in a crowded marketplace, you're going to need a shoe that will help you jump higher or run faster or run longer. You know, when I was in the, in the 90s as a kid, you know, it was a crowded tennis shoe market. Reebok figured out that if they put a basketball pump on the on the tongue of the shoe that they could compete with nike airs because now not only do we have air but you can adjust how much air you've got in it does anybody remember the reebok pumps hey, need yeah, eric remembers did you have any eric no you didn't I, I never did either man i never got any you had to have it you had to have something to set yourself off from the crowd and it needed to be something cool if you wanted anyone to buy your shoes instead of the nikes and that's how personal value works in a modern world where it's a crowded marketplace and, and, and everybody wants the same thing. You need to find your niche. It needs to be something that matters to everybody else 
and you need to do it better than anyone else can do it. There was a few years ago, our family attended a music program put on by our son's second grade class. And I mean, like most everything else at, that, at his elementary school, then it, it was awesome. It was well-planned. It was well-executed. It was a good time for everybody. And throughout the program, throughout the whole thing, we were getting one little taste after another of the, the multicultural flavor that we love so much about that school. There was an Iroquois folk song about a canoe. There was an upbeat number about the culture and geography of Argentina. Have you guys ever noticed that Argentina is shaped like a tornado with a mouth? Look that up later. It's true. There was a Hebrew song performed by a mother-daughter duo who had immigrated from Israel. It was awesome. And as the program continued to build, like a swelling wave, it reached its grand finale, its hallelujah chorus, an anthem called, I'm Unique. I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm loved, I'm smart, and I'm unique. There's no one else in the whole wide world exactly like me. Speak a little bit louder. The world is waiting on your voice. Be true, true to what you have to say. You know you've got the power, but only you can make the choice to do, do it your own way. The world's an oyster. You're the pearl. Let who you really are unfurl. Just be exactly who you are. Be proud and say, I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm loved, I'm smart, and I'm unique. Now, let me be clear. First of all, there is a lot of truth to affirm in that song and a lot to affirm behind the motives in including a song like that one, in a program like that one. Our population at the school included hundreds of students from minority communities that were dealing with generational poverty and weighed down by centuries of lies that were told to them about their dignity and their capacities. This song was meant to help them see that they'd been lied to. Having your dignity denied and your worth invalidated over and over and over by people close to you or authorities over you or a culture around you, that has devastating consequences. And songs like that one are coming from a deep desire to set the record straight, to help these precious kids see the truth about themselves. But however well intended the song may have been, However, mixed with some truth, the perspective on self-worth that's at the center of that song, it relieves one burden, or tries to, by imposing another burden. It tries to relieve one burden by imposing another burden. It affirms that you have value, but it grounds your value in what makes you unique. It affirms that you are worth something. But it ties your worth to what you are that no one else is. It means to level the field. But instead, it feeds competition, relentless competition. And it puts the pressure on kids to be whatever they can be. It doesn't cost me much of anything to tell my son that he's the pearl and the oyster of the world. That is as easy as me telling somebody to order the filet mignon on the menu when I know that he's going to be picking up the check. Sure, have the filet. You'll love it. It'll be great for you. Of course, you'll have to pay for it. I might really want good for him, might genuinely care about him. But if I say that my son is valuable because he's unique, he's going to have to figure out where he's unique. 
He's going to have to make sure that his uniqueness is worth something, is good, and he's going to have to keep that going for as long as he lives. He'll have to pay the bill, in other words, not me. And this approach to justification, which is so powerful in the culture around us, it just isn't working. And I think the signs are all around to see. I think this, this is a big part of what's driving loneliness in our culture. Because it turns even close friends into your competition. It's driving fragility. Because when, when, when what makes you valuable is what you can do better than anyone else, your self-worth is only as solid as the next refresh of your screen when you see someone else now doing what you do better than you can. But most of all, this approach to justification is absolutely wearing people out. It is driving exhaustion all around us. One sociologist maybe gave you the, the best image that I've seen for what it's like to live in the modern world for so many. He described it as running up a down escalator with no end in sight. Everyone now has 24-7 access to all the best things other people have going on, to their cute kids and their exotic vacations and their new outfits and their enviable book taste and their delicious homemade meals. The pressure to keep up this sociologist says, feels like you're just running constantly up that down escalator. You can't stop for breath because if you're not moving up, you're not just stopping for a while. You're moving down. You're losing ground. And everyone else just keeps on running. Friends, if your worth comes down to what you can do that no one else can, if the measure of whether you're good enough is how you compare to others. How could you possibly know when you've done enough? How could you possibly know when it's safe to rest? You can't. The search for justification, the way we're going about it now, it is quite simply exhausting. And I'll ask you again, can you relate to this? Have you felt this in your own heart? Well, if you know what it feels like to struggle with an addict, if I think, I think another way to, to, to describe what you've experienced is as a longing for a rest that you will only ever have in heaven. You are longing for a rest that you'll only ever have in heaven. And I want to show you next the ultimate hope for rest. Paul models it for us in what he has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul was a man who was living in a remarkable freedom, almost unimaginable freedom from the feelings of inadequacy that are just so common around us today in our culture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's writing to friends who had come to believe that he is inadequate. They had seen enough and they believed they, that Paul just didn't measure up. Earlier in the letter, he talks about some of the reasons why that was the case. He talked about how, how they thought other Christian teachers were better than him, other leaders more decisive than him. That for one reason or another, they were comparing him to other options who'd come on their radar since Paul had left them and decided Paul's not enough. But Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 4 that, that their judgment of him, them saying he's inadequate, hasn't actually led him to feelings of inadequacy. They're saying he's inadequate, but... But he's not feeling it. Why? How? It isn't because justification, being good enough, doesn't matter to Paul. It does matter to him because it should matter to him. His freedom 
from the, from the exhausting search we've been talking about comes down to looking for it from the right source on the right basis at the right time. Let me walk you through these verses to show you. The, only, the ultimate hope for rest comes from looking for justification, not in what you can do that nobody else can, but looking for it from the right source on the right basis at the right time. Look at verse 3. With me, Paul says, very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He doesn't care what they think about him. He knows they're saying that he's not enough. But he says, it's a small thing. You don't get to tell me whether, I'm not, whether or not I'm enough. I'm not living my life in your courtroom or any other human courtroom. But then he goes even further. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It doesn't matter what I think of me either. I don't get to look myself in the mirror and say to me, you're enough. There is just one thing that matters to Paul, and that's in verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me, he says at the end of the verse. It is the Lord who judges me. Friends, only the one who made us, only the one who as creator assigned us dignity and purpose in the first place, has the authority to look on us, measure our lives, and tell us, you are enough. Only God gets to do that. Our status in God's eyes is our status. And if we look for validation anywhere else but from that source, then we are only ever going to wear ourselves out and end up empty at the end. It matters what the source is. It also matters what the basis is. So when Paul says it's the Lord who judges him, what he has in mind, I think, is not just the source of the judgment, the voice that speaks over him, but the standard of judgment too. Not just the who in judgment, but the what. The Corinthians, they were using other standards to judge Paul. When they looked at his life, they were applying the standards of their culture. Their culture valued rhetoric, really impressive rhetoric, appearances, People who looked good while they were talking. They valued innovation, you know, things they'd never heard before, said in the way that, they, that these things are said. They, they valued wisdom, you know, the gravitas that comes from someone who's, who seems just a couple steps ahead of you in life. Their judgments were based on standards like that and always on comparison. They would look at that one leader, like Apollos is somebody they were into, comparing to Paul. Paulus they liked, Paul, uh, Paul they didn't. They would look at Peter. They'd see his qualities. Oh, he's so decisive. He always knew what he, was, what, what he thought, and he always said exactly what was in his mind. He never held back. He wasn't weak or wavering. Peter, that's what, a, that's what a true leader should look like. They compared Peter to Paul and found Paul inadequate. But Paul's like, yeah, I don't care. Now, the standard isn't what seems valuable in Corinth. I don't care about that. And the standard isn't how well I match up against Apollos or Peter. I don't, I don't care about that. The standard is the Lord's standard. That's the one that matters. Only the creator decides what is good. Only the creator gets to measure our lives by his unchanging holiness, not our restless attempts to stay two steps ahead of the pack. So to re find rest, you need to know where your justification comes from, right source. The standard on which it comes, right basis. And then Paul says, it's got to be the right time. Look at verse 5. Paul warns the Corinthians not to pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. 
who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. What's Paul talking about? Friends, Paul's looking here to the end of history, to a day that the prophets called the day of the Lord. It's a day on which on which every single person will give an account to God for the lives they've lived, for every thought that's ever passed through their mind, for every motive that's ever gone through their heart, for every action they have ever taken. It's a time when things that are hidden now are revealed before the God who knows all things. It's a day on which those who perhaps abused others and got away with it in this life, never having been caught, never having been held accountable, will stand before the God who made those they abused and give an account to him. It's a day of reckoning based on perfect justice. And the New Testament talks about this day often. It often connects what the prophets said was coming, the day of the Lord, to the return of Jesus and what Jesus will do when he comes again. And Paul, he lived his whole life with that day in view. His letters are full of references to the day that Jesus would come back and that we would stand before God. And right here in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's taken that central Christian expectation, that core part of the Christian view of the future, and he's applying it to the judgments we're so prone to look for all around us in the meantime. He's saying, our judgments now, they mean nothing. This isn't the time for sizing ourselves up. The measure that matters is how we're measured when we stand before Jesus when he comes back. Only then do we get the judgment we crave. Only then do we get a judgment based on the right standard given by the right source at the appointed time. That package right there matters more to Paul and how he sees himself than the fact that the Corinthians don't think he measures up. Now, I think it's safe to say Uh, for most Christians most of the time that the day of judgment is not high on the list of things that we think about if and when we think about our heavenly future. It certainly isn't something that comes quickly to my mind. And maybe you're thinking at this point, after I've described what the day of judgment will be like, even with just those brief sentences, you're thinking, I thought this was a series about hope. That day sounds absolutely terrifying. And you're not wrong in a way. And much of what the Bible says about the day of judgment is terrifying. Because on that day, God's perfect justice is going to assign to every person what they deserve. Again, not just based on what they've done, but what they've said and what they've thought and what they've intended. And on that day, everything that we have hidden away will be exposed to the light. That is a terrifying thought. For anybody with any trace of self-awareness, any inkling of humility. And, and friends, the Bible does say that there is nobody who's righteous. Not one person good enough to stand before God on that day and survive that judgment. Jesus described the day of judgment as a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A day when those who have rejected God receive what they asked for. Lives that are cut off from him utterly. Cut off from 
the only source of goodness and truth and beauty and love. And friends, because that's what the day of judgment will involve, I think the most striking thing in these verses is that Paul says when he looks ahead to that judgment that's coming, he's looking forward to it. He describes that day as a day when each one will receive his commendation from God. What is he talking about? What is he thinking? Why is he so confident that the day of judgment is good news for him as a Christian and for his friends who are Christians that are mistreating him right now and not bad news? Well, Paul hints at the answer to that question in this letter, but I think the best place to see it, the clearest place to see it, is actually in a different letter that he wrote, his letter to the Philippians and chapter three of that letter. So I'm actually gonna invite you now to turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. And I wanna show you why Paul is so confident about the day of judgment. Why when he looks to that day, it's part of the future he looks forward to as part of the hope that God has set before him and not as a day to dread. Philippians chapter three. Most of this chapter, at least the first half or so of it, is Paul doing a little bit of a retrospective on his own life, a before and after, about what he was looking for for justification before he came to know Jesus and what he's looking to now. Read with me, picking up in verse 3. Actually, yeah, pick up in the beginning of verse 3. Paul writes, we are the circumcision, talking about him and his Jewish Christian friends who worship by the Spirit of God and, the, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is him looking to who he is now in Christ. Now he switches back, looking to his before in verse 4. Though he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, for confidence that I am enough as I am on my own, I have more. Now listen to what I had going for me. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I know that list might not sound like very much to me and you. In 21st century America, that isn't our list of ways we would like to stand out. But in Paul's day, on Paul's standards, to Paul's peers, he was a total stud. This was what everybody wanted on their resume. And doesn't this list sound pretty well rehearsed to you? It seems to me like that's not the first time Paul had called to mind all that he had going for him. How he stacked up to his peers around him. I think that those verses read like Paul's own personalized version of I'm unique. Tailored to standards that mattered in his day. He knew he was special. He knew why he was special. He had a list. And he could back it all up with evidence. But then look at where he goes in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When Paul says that now he wants to be found in him, he's talking about the day of judgment. Before, he was hoping he would stand there on that day good enough on his own two feet, wrapped in the righteousness he got from being born at the right time, into the right tribe, circumcised right on schedule, and zealous more than anybody else all about the law. Now, he wants to stand there on that day good enough in Christ, not having his own righteousness but having righteousness that comes from God, the kind that depends on faith. And the reason he made this trade, he makes crystal clear at the end of what I read. By any means possible, verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible, by the only means possible, he wants to not receive the wages of sin, which is death, but to receive the wages of righteousness, which is resurrection from the dead. He wants to be found in Jesus because in Jesus he survives. And on his own, he won't. One pastor compared what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the righteousness of Jesus to what it's like to wear a spacesuit. The righteousness of Jesus is to judgment day what a spacesuit is to the walk on a moon. Spacesuit standard issue uniform, right? You don't get to pick your own style. There's not a lot of brands to choose from. Forget about compliments or standing out from the crowd. You just get the one that's offered to you. But nobody cares about that. Nobody cares because this suit, this is life and death. I wear this suit and I live. I wear what I want to wear, what I brought to this party on the moon, and I die. It's either or. We cannot possibly survive the day of judgment on our own. Our righteousness is not good enough, but Jesus lived the perfectly good enough life we haven't lived. Jesus died the the death that we deserve to die, and he did that so he could trade our sin, take that for himself, for his righteousness, give that to us. And Paul put it like this in another one of his letters, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When God gave his only son so that those who believe in him would not perish, he was sending into the world a righteousness, a good enoughness from God that depends on faith. He said, in effect, here, put this on, wear this, and live. Jesus' righteousness is spotless. I mean, this son was such a delight to his father. God loves this son so much that on more than one occasion in the life of Jesus, heaven opened and a voice spoke from the heavens, spilling over with delight, shouting to all the world, this is my son right here. I am well pleased in him. He pleases me, my son. And the gospels are full of examples of why that would be true. Jesus, he even said to his disciples, it is my food to do the will of my father. I live on obedience. It is that important to me. It is everything. I love to obey him. He prayed to his father in secret on the regular because he didn't care about drawing attention to himself with all of his piety. He couldn't live without his father. That's who God was to him. 
He loved him with all his heart and his soul and his mind. And then he treated people as if he really loved God. He treated them with dignity and respect as God's image bearers. He treated them with kindness and compassion because God is, even when they had nothing to offer him in return. He was faithful to his friends because God's love is steadfast. He stuck with them no matter what, no matter how many times they let him down. And even those who crucified Jesus, when they condemned and then executed him, even they admitted, he didn't deserve this. This man did nothing wrong. He didn't die because he deserved it, but because we do. And now, on the only standard that matters, Jesus' righteousness is spotless. And when you're found in him, by faith, you are too. So what does that have to do with longing for heaven when we place our faith in Christ? What does all this stuff about Judgment Day have to do with what we're longing for, hoping for as Christians? The promise of Judgment Day for a Christian is that when we place our faith in Christ, God sees us as he sees Jesus. Once and for all, he is as delighted in us as he is in Christ. That's already true for anyone who has faith. But for now, in this world as it is, friends, we don't see what God sees. We don't see ourselves as God sees us. I mean, I'm, I am clinging to the righteousness of Christ by faith every day. But I absolutely do not enjoy that righteousness by sight. Not yet. It is so obvious to me more obvious to me every day, I think, than it ever has been. That I am not as patient with my kids as he was with his disciples. I'm not as bothered as he was by the reality of sin in the world. It doesn't break my heart or stir me to anger as it did him. And honestly, I'm a lot more bothered by sins against me than he was. I'm not as kind or compassionate. I'm not as resilient in temptation. I'm not as eager to pray. For as long as I live in this world, in other words, when I look at me in the mirror, I'm going to see plenty of evidence that I am not enough as I am. Paul knew what this was like. When he once compared himself to others, it was to name himself the chief of sinners. There's the race I win to the chief of sinners. When I look at me, that's what I see. But on that day, on the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, on that day, by his grace, through my faith, I will stand in him complete. I, by faith, will get the commendation Jesus deserves, and I'll finally, forever, see myself as the Father sees his only begotten Son. Paul's hoping in that day. That's why he longs for heaven. That's why you should long for it too. If you do, the hope of that day can transform how you cope with being you in the meantime. <laughs> Point three, the challenge of faith in the meantime. How the hope of that day informs how we see us now as we try to walk in faith. Until Christ comes again, we are going to have an everyday battle to walk by faith and not by sight. 
I mean it, guys. We are going to live with every day, even hourly evidence that we aren't good enough on our own. Some of that will come from standards that don't matter or matter more to us than they ought to. Standards from our culture around us, standards we've set for ourselves, standards that matter to us more than they should. We'll feel inadequate because we don't measure up. And some of it will come from the fact that the more we grow as Christians, the more sensitive we're going to be to our sins against God. Growing as a Christian means seeing your sin the way God does more and more and more and more. That means it becomes more serious to you, more grievous to you. And that means you, you see your own not enoughness more and more clearly the more you grow. So, the question is not whether or not we're going to struggle with feelings of inadequacy. The question for us is how are we going to respond to them when we do? Are we going to walk by faith, waiting patiently for the day when we see ourselves as God sees us in Jesus? Or are we going to, are we going to grasp for a righteousness of our own that we can see here and now in the meantime to take the edge off the pain? How can we walk by faith while we wait to see what God already sees? I want to close by giving you three things. How can we walk by faith now? What is this challenge of faith while we wait to see what God sees? First, we need to call the impulse to stand out from the crowd what it is. Pride. It's pride. C.S. Lewis said that pride is essentially competitive. <laughs> pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. <laughs> That's what he wrote. Pride says, figure out where you shine, build your life there. Or as that elementary anthem puts it, be proud and say, I'm unique. Friends, pride is a poison that our culture doles out as medicine. The standard prescription for dealing with inadequacy in the world at large is find what you're good at and lean into it. Build up your confidence in where you're exceptional. But that poison is feeding the problem that it means to solve. We need to call it what it is. It's pride. Number two, we need to recognize how easily we drift toward a righteousness based on works. We need to recognize how easily we as Christians drift toward a righteousness based on on works. The poison of pride is in the air that we breathe, but it's deep in our hearts too. It's not the fault of the world that we're so tempted to try to prove ourselves to God and ourselves and to anyone else who's looking. That is just living with sin in your heart. We are always going to be susceptible to pride, looking for a righteousness that we can claim for our own, the one that we can see. And I think, friends, we are most susceptible when we feel most inadequate. Just think for a moment. How would you normally, what would be your tendency in looking to encourage somebody who's feeling down on themselves? Especially if they're not completely wrong about what they're feeling bad about. I'll tell you what my tendency is. If, I, if somebody's down on themselves, maybe they're right about it, at least a little bit, my tendency is going to want to overcome what they're feeling bad about by pointing out what they're really good at. So you're not as fast as that guy, but you're way stronger though. So you struggle with social studies, but you're amazing at math. So maybe you're not so great in the kitchen, but you're in such great shape. 
I mean, you see what I'm saying? You're going to want to help somebody feel better. And your default strategy is probably going to be to help them see what makes them uniquely awesome. What it is that's good that outweighs where they're not measuring up. It's a balancing act. There's even a popular Christian version of this, friends. This impulse, it's got just enough truth in it to be dangerous. The idea is that, is that the key to feeling good about yourself is recognizing the unique gifts and strengths and beauty that God put into you when he made you, you. You are as unique as a fingerprint. Your creator knows exactly how he made you unique because he's the one who made you this way. And you need to see what God sees when God looks at you. That's how you can be confident. That's, that's got truth in it. God is a creator of infinite capacity and amazing creativity. And there is no person who's exactly like any other person. God should get glory for that. But you do not want to base your self-worth on something unique to you that God sees when he looks at you. That is a losing game. That is only going to exhaust you. You need to see what God sees when he looks at Jesus and rest in that. Can you hear in that almost true framing the echo of the Pharisee's prayer when he looked over his shoulder at that pitiful tax collector standing nearby. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Thank you, God, for making me unique. There's a nod to God's role and his awesomeness. On its surface, it is a prayer of thanksgiving, but the substance of it is a prayer of self-worship. It celebrates what makes me me. That's what matters. And it feeds on comparison to others. The same comparison to others that stirs up feelings of inadequacy in the first place. It wasn't the Pharisee who went home that day justified, Jesus said. It was the tax collector who simply prayed, facing up to his own inadequacy, mercy. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, but have mercy. Friends, I, I, of course I don't mean to say that there is nothing unique about you and me. I am not denying that our uniqueness can glorify God either. What I'm saying is that it matters what's your base layer and it matters what's your outer wear. What simply is what it is and what you want to have noticed. Because our culture values what our hearts are naturally wanting. My brilliance on display, head and shoulders above the crowd. Because our culture values what we crave anyways. We're going to be tempted to see Jesus as something we put on beneath the surface. While we carry on looking for the same attention that we've always wanted with whatever we have to offer the world. We can treat Jesus as a pair of long John underwear, you know? Warm, comforting, nice to have on a cold winter's day, but not outward facing. You know, if you got long Johns, you can't name the brand probably, probably don't even care. You don't care where anybody else shows up wearing the same pair that you've got. I mean, not the same pair, but the same style. It doesn't bother you. It's base layer. It's a means to an end. What matters is what you put on outside of that. That's what you want people to see. That's where you're more picky. Our culture and our hearts conspire together to make us care more about being noticed for something we don't share with every other Christian. That puts Jesus as a base layer while we spend our time preening around in the fancy clothes of righteousness we try to find for ourselves. That is a losing game. Jesus deserves more. It's one thing to say all you need is Jesus to somebody else who needs a boost of encouragement. It's another thing to say, all I have is Christ. He is all 
my righteousness. He's not a base layer. He's not a bottom floor for a ladder I want to climb. He's everything. All my hope, all my peace, all other ground is sinking sand. Can you say that? How could you say that if it's hard? Number three, we need to remember the day of judgment to help us trust in Christ alone. The way to say that, the way to say Jesus is everything to me is to cultivate a clear and everyday awareness that a day of judgment is coming that my righteousness cannot survive. But Jesus' righteousness is good enough. It was a day of judgment that kept Paul humble. It was a day of judgment that made Paul not really care how he stacked up against Peter or Apollos. It was because of the day of judgment ever before his eyes that he didn't care who the Corinthians would rather have in their pulpit. Paul just refused to live his life on trial in their court. He just wanted God's commendation. That was everything to him. By any means possible, I just want the resurrection from the dead. I want God to look on me and say, come on in to the new world I'm building, a world of righteousness and peace and joy in my presence. Come in. You're welcome here. That's all he cared about. I think it's important for us to now see any desire in our hearts to stand out from others as a desire for judgment at the wrong time on the wrong basis. We are so often going to want a judgment here and now. And we want it based on what we can see, on what we can claim. We would rather live by sight than wait in faith. But when we focus our eyes, when we discipline ourselves to look at the day of judgment, and remember that day is real and it's coming, a day when we stand before the all-seeing eye and the perfect holiness of the only one who matters, then that helps to keep our hearts tethered to the right basis. It's Jesus' righteousness or nothing. And if something won't matter to God on that day, it shouldn't matter to us now. So, friends, if you're feeling good about yourself for one reason or another, you may need to hear Paul's words as a warning. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. The day is coming. Only Jesus' righteousness will survive it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and live. And when you're feeling down on yourself for one reason or another, you'll need to remember Paul's words as a comfort. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. This isn't it. That day is coming. Jesus' righteousness is enough. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to grow in our confidence about Jesus and to live with a confidence that glorifies him even now. Would you focus our eyes on his righteousness, not ours, and relieve us from endless striving after something we get to take credit for? And would you help us to that end to live with the day always in front of us, not with fear, but with hope. In Jesus' name, amen.